As I said earlier, we had a great month of March as we celebrated what God has done. And we have also celebrated Easter last week. And I wanted to continue uh, the joy of the season that led up to Easter by looking at the book of Philippians for the next few weeks. So many people try to find joy in life. And the book of Philippians, its main theme is about joy. Especially joy when circumstances are difficult. And haven't we certainly had a year of difficult circumstances? Uh, A year of isolation and a year of uh, being told what to do. A year of, honestly, depression and just a malaise of of doom. We always hear the news, more people are dying, more people are going to die. It's been a rough year. And it's been hard at times to find joy in the midst of this pandemic. And this has been a national, global thing. I know it's true in your personal lives. When things are difficult, it's difficult to find joy. And so people search for joy in relationships, in the creature comforts of life, you know, in in the food and the drink and the luxuries of life. They think they'll find joy there. Look for it in, in wealth and look for joy uh, any place they can find it. But isn't it true that even at times we as Christians, when we look for joy in all those places, it still escapes us? And I think one reason it does is because no matter where we are, there's always two people. There's God and there's us. Isn't that true? You go to the moon, God and you are there. No matter where you go, and not only physically where you go, but whatever state of mind, so to speak, you are in, you and God are there. And think about this. If you cannot find the right joy in your relationship with God, and if you don't understand who you are in yourself and the purpose God has given you and where God wants you to serve, if you do not have joy in that, You're not going to have joy no matter where you are physically or where you are in your state of mind. I mean, you can change your job. You can change where you live. You can change your spouse. You can change your diet. You can change every aspect of your life. But if you don't have the right relationship with God or the right understanding of who you are in the presence of God, if you don't have joy here, you move here, you still don't have joy. That's where it begins. And so I think sometimes even Christians struggle with joy because the relationship with God's not right. So even before we look at the book of Philippians, I want you to focus on that this morning. Your relationship with God and who you are. If you can find joy there, you'll find joy no matter where you live, no matter what your circumstances are. And the Apostle Paul is an example of that. And we will learn from his example as we study the book of Philippians. It begins with these verses of introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was writing to the church in Philippi. Here is a modern picture of the ancient ruins of Philippi. It was a city that had a great history. 
In the time of Alexander the Great, it became the capital of the entire Greek Empire, named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip. In Romans' times, it had been taken over by the Romans, it had become a Roman colony, and the Romans would often send great military leaders to retire there in Philippi. So it had a proud history, a wealthy history. It was uh, 800 miles from Rome, but it felt very Roman if you ever went there or lived there in the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul came to the city on his second missionary journey. If you look at this map, you'll see in the bottom right-hand corner, Jerusalem. And on his second missionary journey, Paul went through what is today Turkey, but was called Asia Minor then. And he wanted to travel more and plant more churches there. But there was a vision that he had in a dream one night. Where there was a man who was calling from Macedonia saying, come here. So Paul listened. And he and Timothy and Silas and later Luke joined them. They left Asia Minor, if you look where the big red arrow is, there is Philippi. They crossed that water, came to Neapolis, and then traveled to Philippi. As Paul's custom was, he would go to a town and look for a Jewish synagogue. And that's where he would begin his ministry, telling the Jews about the Messiah and how Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But when he came to Philippi, being a very Roman city, he didn't find a Jewish synagogue there. But there were some Jewish people who were worshiping, and they were worshiping with a woman named Lydia. And so Lydia and those worshiping with her became the first church there in Philippi. About 80, excuse me, 50 AD is when this happened. And so from Lydia, the first convert, if you know the story in the book of Acts in chapter 16, Paul and Silas also free a young slave girl from demon possession. And then they're thrown into prison because her slave owners had lost their livelihood because they used her to get money as she would, quote, prophesy. So they threw Paul and Silas in jail. While they were in jail, they're singing hymns one night and there's an earthquake and all the cell doors open up and the jailer is afraid that now all the prisoners have escaped and he's ready to take his life and Paul tells him to Stop. None of us are gone. We're all here. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so he does believe in his household. Lydia and her household and the slave girl. These are the first converts to Christianity in Philippi, in the city that is in the continent of Europe. This is the first church there in Europe. And these are the ones who are saved and start the church in Philippi. Eleven years later now, when we come to the book of Philippians, Paul is in prison. He's there waiting trial. But he's not in a jail cell that we would think of or a dungeon. He's under house arrest. So he doesn't have any freedom, so he is imprisoned. He has soldiers there guarding him. He's in a house. He's not allowed to leave. But he is allowed to write. He's allowed to have visitors. And so it is an imprisonment, but not what sometimes we think of, uh, you know, we think of Paul down in a dark dungeon and he's got chains and uh, he can't see any light because there's just a little slit of light coming through a window. At least in his first imprisonment here in Rome, that was not his conditions. But nevertheless, still, he was 
imprisoned. And yet he's imprisoned 800 miles from Philippi. Yet this whole entire book is four chapters. It's a short letter, but joy is written all over its pages. Joy, the word is used four times. Rejoice eight times. Glad three times. Do you think that this would be your attitude if you were in prison awaiting trial? Paul's trial, he could be found guilty. He could be executed. Right now, he has no freedom. He's isolated. Maybe you know what that feels like over the last year, being isolated in your house, not allowed to leave. I don't think the first attitude, the first emotion we have usually is joy under those circumstances. But Paul did. And that's why we will learn as we read this letter and study it, how we can have joy wherever we are, whatever place, whether it's a geographical location or a place in life, Christians can have joy. There's joy in Christian partnership. And that's the first lesson we learned today. And we see it first in these verses as the Philippians are on Paul's mind in verses three through five. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul had not seen the Philippians in 11 years and he's 800 miles away from them, but they were on his mind a lot. And every time he prayed and he thought of them, he was glad, he was Happy, he was rejoicing because of this wonderful church. He rejoiced because of their compassion for him, their generosity towards him, always partnering with him to make sure that the gospel of Christ was proclaimed. And as he said, from the very first day, they had been a partner with him. I mentioned Lydia. Where was the first place the church met? It was in Lydia's house. So from the very beginning, Lydia wanted to make sure that Paul had a place to bring people as the gospel was proclaimed. Paul's time in Philippi was short. He continued on, but the Philippians continued to give him financial support immediately after he left and continuing over the years. And when they had an offering that Paul was collecting for the poor in Jerusalem, the Philippians gave generously even though they were poor themselves. And right now, Paul's in Rome, imprisoned, and they have sent money, and they have sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to take care of Paul. Can you see how they have been with Paul all along? With him helping him financially, with him sending help, with him sending help to those who are poor in Jerusalem? You can see why when Paul thought of this church, He was glad and filled with joy. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be known as a church, Olive Branch Baptist Church, when uh, missionaries or those proclaiming the gospel who had any connection to us thought of us, they would think, wow, I love that church. You know, that's a church where the presence of God is. That's a church that's generous. That's a church that helps. That's a church that partners in the gospel. That's who these Philippians were. I can see why Paul thought of them often. And thought of them with joy. 
But I want you to think about this, that there is joy when we partner together as believers to help people in need. Many of the times in my ministry when there has been the most joy is when I have been alongside brothers and sisters serving other people. It can be simple as locally here at the Bracey Ray of Hope with the young people, handing out groceries, or going to Ghana and sharing the gospel with Africans. But in all these and others, there was joy because myself and other Christians were serving others. That, that brought us together, and we were filled with joy as we were able to share and able to see what we were doing was helping those who were in need. Have you ever noticed that when you focus only on yourself, you become a very miserable person? Some of the most miserable people in this world are the most selfish people. And this is why. Because when you focus only on yourself, you never have enough. You can never have enough whatever. Enough time, enough money, enough friends, enough work, enough achievement. If you're only focused on yourself, you'll never have enough, so you'll never be satisfied. There's no joy. But have you also noticed in your life that when you do serve others, especially when that service helps, and especially when you do it with other believers, there's immediate joy. So I would even encourage you, if you're just miserable one day, one week, stop thinking about yourself and go help somebody you'll probably see a change in your attitude. Helping others often takes the focus off what we're going through, and often we focus on stuff that we can't change or is frivolous or is not godly. So we're not focused on ourselves and focused on the needs of others, and especially giving them the gospel. Our focus is on helping them. When we see the difference that service makes, it brings joy. And as I said, when we work together, it brings joy. I've noticed in ministry that Christians will argue about how we worship. Christians will argue about doctrine. Uh, sometimes even when there's food, we don't argue over it. But uh, you know, we're in our cliques. We eat with our friends here and the other folks eat over here. And there's no unity in worship. There's no unity in teaching. There's no unity in fellowship when we're eating sometimes. But I have always seen unity and joy when Christians serve together. Because again, the focus isn't on us then. It becomes on someone else and helping them. And that's been some of the, the most uplifting times in my ministry. And I'm sure as I'm talking, you can testify to the same. And so that's why Paul is so filled with joy. And why the Philippians also are encouraged to rejoice. Because they have worked together, supporting each other, unified together helping the spread of the gospel. And they are filled with joy. Paul continues on. He says this in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As, you, as we go through Philippians, you'll notice there are some verses that you will hear and you'll say, I've heard that verse before. I've seen it on a bookmark. I've seen it on a church sign. I've seen it on a t-shirt. 
Because there are some great one-liners in the book of Philippians. <laughs> verses that give us encouragement and comfort. And here, I believe, is the first one. I've heard this verse many times, and it is a great encouragement to know that God began a work in you and me when he saved us. And he's not going to stop working on us until he's finished and we are complete. I think the best way to understand this is to see our salvation in three stages. If you were a believer today, there was a day, there was a moment when you heard the gospel. You heard that you were a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose again to life, that he offered you a gift of salvation and eternal life if you would believe. And you said to Jesus as you prayed, I believe, I trust, my faith is in you. And you were saved. Your sins were forgiven. Your eternal future was with the Lord in heaven. But that's not the end of our salvation. That's just the beginning. At that moment, of course, for everybody, it's different. Some people are young. Some people are old. Some people have lived a life of dark sin. Others have lived a life of sin that others would just gloss over. It's all sin. What I'm trying to say is we come from different places, but all of us, when we're saved, have a long way to go to be like Jesus. And that is the goal of our Christian lives. That's why when God saves us, he doesn't immediately take us to heaven if all salvation was about was saving us from hell, God could just say, okay, I saved you from hell. Come on home. But God wants to do more in our life than save us from hell. He wants to transform us into the likeness of his son. So as we live our Christian life, we grow in Christ's likeness. And that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit lives in us and changes us. But there is a part that we have to play because God never forces anything on anybody. Just as if we had to believe and had a choice in our salvation, we have so also in our sanctification, the big fancy word for growing in faith and becoming like Jesus Christ. We can say no to the Spirit. When we say no to the Spirit, we remain a baby Christian. And you've seen some people like that. They've been Christians for 50 years. It was 50 years ago the day of their salvation. But they haven't grown any in 50 years because they have constantly said no to God as he's tried to change them and transform them. But Christians who are obedient and listen to the Spirit and, and say yes to God, they are changed. And they become more and more like Christ. And we'll talk about that in a moment of what that looks like, the fruit of righteousness. When that happens, we become more like Christ. And there's going to come a day, either in our death or when Christ comes back, that we will have... Sin no longer is part of our life. We will be glorified. We will be perfect. Our bodies will be perfect to spend eternity with God. We will be perfect in the sense there will be no sin in us. We'll be in a perfect place where there is no sin, no sorrow, no grief, crying or pain. That's the completion of our salvation. And Paul says he's confident that God who began a good work in us will complete it. That gives us joy to know we have a future and what a glorious future we have. So even though we struggle with sin and temptation and Satan and tragedy and the consequences of sin in our life and on this planet right now, this isn't the end. This is not how it will end up. We will be glorified. 
And with that confidence, Paul declares that with that confidence, we can live each day with joy. Paul also says that these Philippians were on his heart. In verse 7, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He just didn't think about the Philippians. They were right here in his heart. He was moved by their love. He was moved for compassion for them because they were such great partners together. And he missed them dearly and deeply. There is joy in having that kind of relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. Know that as partners, we are working for the glory of God, the gospel being spread. Paul had that love for them in his heart. That's why he was confident. That's why he was writing them. That's why he was filled with joy. But Paul also prayed for them. These are the last verses we'll look at this morning. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And I pray this, that your love, will keep on growing in knowledge in every kind of discernment. His first prayer for them was that their love would grow. I want you to notice that he wants it to grow in knowledge and discernment. Because we often, even as Christians, will think about love as something romanticized or sappy or soft or an emotion And we'll hear our culture say, you know, don't judge anybody, just love. All we need is more love and more love. And that's the kind of message we hear and that's the kind of love we think about. But Paul's not praying for more of that love. He's praying for a love that's based on knowledge and discernment, knowing what's right and what's wrong. You see, love and truth should always be together. And every time we love, there should be truth behind it. And every time we speak the truth, there should be love behind it. And you see Christians who will either speak the truth boldly and loudly and arrogantly and confidently. And people hear it and they're just turned off because all they hear is truth, judgment, noise. And there's not a bit of grace or love. That's not what we're called to do. And we're not called either to have this wishy-washy type of love and grace where there's no judgment whatsoever. There's no discernment. We would just say, oh, it doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. What you do doesn't matter. There's no such thing as sin. Just love. That's not what we're called to do either. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And he attracted the worst sinners. He didn't hold back the truth. He told them, you're a sinner. Stop sinning. He was truthful to them. But he's also so full of grace and love and compassion that they were drawn to him. They couldn't stay away from him. That is what we're called to do. And Paul prays, hey, have this love that grows in knowledge, grows in discernment. So that you can love that way. Love full of grace and full of truth. That is the love 
that Paul prays for the Philippians that we should pray for. A Christ-like love. He also prayed this, that you may be, that, so that you may approve the things that are superior. You see, in the Christian life, often we have to make a choice between what is good versus what is best. Not always a choice between good and evil. Most Christians can choose between good and evil. And there are a lot of Christians who do a good job at that. And they don't choose evil. They choose what's right. But there is also a lot of Christians who are good at choosing good, but they miss out on the best. Because they are not able to discern what is best for them. They're not listening to God. That's why Paul's praying. He's praying that you would be able to understand as your love grows and discernment to be able to distinguish between what is good for you and what is best for you. What is best for you is what God wants you to do and what he wants for your life. And I do see some Christians who will make good choices. But their good choices don't get them closer to God, doesn't bring them into more service, doesn't change people's lives for the kingdom, doesn't influence anybody. They're not making bad decisions. They're not deep, dark, evil sin. They just made a lot of good decisions and they've missed out on the best. It's hard to know the difference between what is good and what is best. That's why Paul's praying. He's praying that the Philippians, that we, if we make this prayer, are able to do that so that we will have the best in our life. He also says that we may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. And this all works together. As we love with discernment and knowledge and as we make the best choices, we then are going to live a life that's pure and blameless before God. And his final prayer is this in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, as we are transformed to the likeness of Christ, our character is one that is the fruit of righteousness. In Galatians, Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. These characteristics are Christ-like. And as our life is changed by the Spirit of God, we look more and more like Jesus. And our character is more and more like the Spirit of God. That's what Paul is praying for here. That the Philippians' life would look like this. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. I love Paul's prayers because his prayers are different from ours. I would say 90% of our prayers are prayers for blessing and healing. We are commanded to pray for healing. So I'm not dismissing that. And there's nothing wrong with praying for God to give us something or to pray on behalf of someone that God would give them something. Nothing wrong with that. We're commanded to do that. But I think we stop there too often. Paul spent 90% of his prayers praying for spiritual growth. Did you hear his prayer? It really had four parts to it. Not a single part of it was that the Philippians would have more money. Not a single part of it was that they would have more blessing physically, materially. Not a part of it was for healing for any of them in that church. He didn't pray that. 
He prayed that their love would grow in knowledge and discernment. He prayed that they'd be able to discern the best from the good. He prayed that they would be pure and blameless. He prayed that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Does that sound like your prayers? Does that sound like my prayers? I'd have to admit my prayers like many Christians. My prayers are bless this person, bless that person, give them this, give them that, heal them from this, heal them from that. I need to pray more for myself, for, my, for you all, for my brothers and sisters, for God to do mighty works in their lives, that their lives are changed spiritually. They're more like Jesus Christ. You see, God always, at some point in your life, is going to say no to a prayer of healing. Because one day you're going to die. And the last I checked, whatever you die from is usually a sickness or an illness or something like that, or a tragedy or an accident. Right, God's going to say, no, I'm not answering that prayer. It's time to come home. It's not wrong to pray for healing, but the truth is one day God's going to say, no, I'm not answering that prayer. And not even in death, sometimes he says no to that anyway, because he uses that to teach us something. But I know this too, if we pray for spiritual growth, pray for those things that Paul prayed for, God is always going to answer those. Maybe not immediately. He's not going to grow you up overnight. You pray, God... I want to be a super saint. And God says, okay, tomorrow morning you will be. Maybe he's not going to do that maybe overnight. But if that's your prayer every day, God's going to answer that prayer eventually. Uh, these are the things that are the will of God for us to be like his son. And we know when we pray God's will, God answers that prayer. So that's why I encourage you and challenge you to pray more like Paul. Pray for your life to be changed. And we pray that prayer and we're filled with joy if the healing doesn't come, if the gifts don't come, the blessing doesn't come, we still have God, we still have joy, we still have our future and we are being changed into the likeness of Christ filled with that fruit of righteousness that is so appealing to others and so beneficial to ourselves. And that's why those prayers are so important. And that's why I'm going to pray that right now, as Paul had prayed. Father, I do pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters. I pray, God, that you would transform us to the likeness of Jesus. And I pray that we would say yes to you, Holy Spirit, so that that can happen. I pray that we would have love that's filled with discernment and knowledge. I pray that we would be pure and blameless. I pray that we would have the fruit of righteousness. I pray that when we stand before you, we would be pure and blameless. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us to find joy in you and in serving others. And I pray for our partnerships together to grow closer. I pray for our heart for those who are in need and need the gospel would grow so that we are partnering and reaching out to them. And I pray, Lord, as we reach out to others and help others in their need, that, Lord, you would fill our lives with joy. I do pray for any brother or sister here this morning or who is watching. Lord, I know the reality of life is it's filled with times of despair and hurt and pain, depression where joy seems impossible. 
Yet, Lord, I know that you do the impossible. And so I pray for those going in those dark times right now. I pray for you to change their circumstances. But, Lord, even if you don't, I pray that you would give them joy in the midst of those circumstances. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your supernatural joy and peace. I thank you now, Lord, that we can say yes to you as we respond. And I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's respond to what God has spoken to your heart this morning. I will meet you as you leave or I'll meet you right now in this time as you want me to pray with you or you want to make a commitment to the Lord sure this morning. Let's sing and let's respond.